kind of a, a text that sets our mind, a text that we read last week, <coughs> Psalm 133, which we had a blessing, the blessing, the privilege of hearing a sermon preached on this particular text while we were away, and it was absolutely wonderful, and I plan on sending out those sermons, and I think that you'd be greatly benefited by them from our conference. But notice, just to frame our minds towards the importance of talking about unity today, notice verse 1 of Psalm 133, Behold, I'm going to try not to re-preach the sermon I heard, okay, Uh, Behold, so look at Right? Take your eyes off of something and look at something important. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Not just good, not just something that we should strive for and aspire to, but something pleasant, something that is rich, part of our human lives. And notice the two examples that he gives of this unity of church fellowship. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. And really briefly, just to understand this imagery as we have this psalm in our mind, we have here the, the picture of Aaron, his head being anointed with this oil, but being anointed with oil so much that it, it runs down not just on his head, the person of Aaron, but even onto his robes, those, those vestments that represented his representation before God of the people. Right? You might remember the breastplate of the, the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel is written on his blessed breastplate. As he represented the people of Israel before God, this anointing flowed down, not just on the person of Aaron, but flowed to the people, so to speak. And we see that mostly in Jesus Christ, our great high priest, as he is anointed and his blessings flow onto the body, which is the church. And the second example is that of Hermon, this big mountain that was close to Israel. And it would get all the dew and the water And actually, I believe Jordan flows from Mount Hermon, the river Jordan. And so the blessings that fall upon Mount Jordan, likewise, they they flow to the people of God in a dry and arid place. They depend on the blessing of a greater thing to flow to them. And then notice the end of verse 3. For the Lord has come for there. And I believe that there is where brothers dwell in unity, not Mount Hermon. For there, the Lord has commanded the blessing life forever more. And so the last week we tried to to show the importance and the substance of our unity, right? The substance of our unity or why we're united together. You might remember it's not in fleshly ways like we see in this world, right? We're not united just by blood relationship. In fact, there's very few of us in this room that are truly related by blood, at least closely related, right? We're not related by our hobbies, right? Bowling or uh, shooting guns, or I'm trying to look around the room, carpentry, or whatever it might be, right? We're not united primarily on those fleshly categories, although those might help and supplement, right? We're united because Jesus Christ has come, taken us out of Adam and placed him in his own blessed person as our representative. He tells us that he is the vine and we are the branches. And so from him, we not only have this legal unity that we're under Jesus Christ in justification, but we have an organic unity, just like this oil that flows from his head to his body, his life that is in him. True godliness and righteousness, it flows to the church because we are connected to him. And if we are connected to him, the logic goes, we are truly, really, spiritually united together. It's real. 
And we will experience the fullness of that unity in heaven forever when there will be no division among us. Not possible. Won't enter the mind. Substance of our unity. And so today, it's going to depend on how, uh, how talkative, how responsive you are to my questions here. But the, the thought is that we're going to go through the causes of disunity and how the Bible talks about making peace from those causes. Okay, so how do we strive for unity um, in some degree? So we want to recognize the problems, we want to diagnose, and we also want to be able to see a solution. And then next week, if we, this is the plan, we're going to look at peacemaking in particular. So for our individual lives, how do we go about making peace with other people? Okay, this is briefly something that's very highly committed in Scripture. We're going to read one text in James chapter 4 or James chapter 3, but Matthew, we know. Matthew chapter 5, when it talks about the blessings that we have as new covenant people, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, right? We, we ought to be making peace because that is what we have to do in this earth and unity is important for that. So, as we consider that, we consider the substance of our unity together, the reality of it, but also the reality that in this broken and fallen world, unity doesn't come naturally like it will in the next. It's something that has to be striven for and worked towards, right? We have to realize that disunity, even among God's people, is a very common experience. And if we just think through the Scripture, it becomes immediately clear that disunity is one of the primary effects of sin in this fallen world. In fact, in Genesis chapter 4, don't we see that? With two brothers coming from Adam and Eve, having the promise of God given to them. In the next generation, we see a brother rise against brother to kill him because his brother's deeds were righteous while his deeds were evil. We have disunity, right? We see disunity among the 12 patriarchs with Joseph, don't we? Where they want to separate him away. We see disunity among the tribes of Israel throughout their time traveling through the promised land and in Egypt. We see disunity at Babel, right? We, we can proliferate these, these things. This unity is, disunity is a part of human existence, but the gospel is meant to reverse that disunity, right? Uh, I hope I don't get these words wrong, and you'll have to forgive me if I do. You know, the, the centrifugal, that force is outward, right? Right, okay. The centrifugal force of sin, it drives people away from one another, right? But, but the gospel is centripetal. It, it, it brings them in, and we even see that at Pentecost, as the tribes are gathered together for the feast, and, and Peter preaches, and all of these nations represented under heaven, they... They come, they hear the gospel, and they even, right, at Babel, they heard their tongues were divided, right? But at Pentecost, they, they hear. They hear the same words being st- spoken, even though they're in many different tongues, and they're united together under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we, today, must strive for unity because we still live with fallen, broken hearts. And so we want to talk about unity and the causes of it. So first, when we talk about the causes of disunity, we're going to look at the source and the manifestations of that disunity. So when we talk about the source of disunity, what would we say the source of disunity is? There's multiple 
somewhat correct answers here. Yeah. Pride. Pride. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's that's somewhat specific, but it's broad as well. Pride is true. Jealousy. Jealousy. Yes. Selfishness. Selfishness. Absolutely. Sin. Yes. Yes. And sin is broad, and we we could categorize all these things as sins primarily coming from the heart, right? The source of disunity, as explained in Scripture, is, is not something outside of ourselves. It's not our own personal struggles with things, our own political influences or anything like that. Sin comes from the heart. And I have two texts that I'd like us to turn to. And they're longer texts today. But I, again, the, as we're turning to James chapter 3, I want us to be considering how the source of all church disunity, again, like we talked about last week in sermon, The source of disunity is not the manifestations. It's not because we have different fleshly elements that we disagree about. The source of disunity is from our hearts. Notice in verse 13 of chapter 3, and we're going to read into chapter 4, James being somewhat notoriously hard to uh, put chapter divisions into. Um, Notice as he's talking about the tongue, right? And specifically, I think about ministers. Not many of you should become teachers, brothers, right? Because the tongue is evil. It says in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works. Notice the heart words that we have here. The meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, we've named some of those things. Do not be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, right? So, this is a text that we can probably only know in our own hearts, right? Are you someone that's considered wise, or you think that yourself is wise? Now, it's calling us, examine your heart, for if there's jealousy and selfish ambition there, if that's a prime motivating factor for you showing wisdom... James wants us to know, without a shadow of a doubt, this is unspiritual and demonic wisdom. It doesn't come from above. But notice, verse 16, it doesn't just stay in the heart, does it? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist in the heart, I will add, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, in contrast, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, right? So we have the contrast here. What is the contrast between those two? Those two heart elements of the two men, you might say, that are vying for the wise person in the church, in the congregation's eyes, maybe. What's the difference between those two men at base? Isn't it that one's seeking jealous, selfish ambition, right? Where the other is really seeking the good of everybody in the church, right? It doesn't try to exalt itself and vault itself up above others. It's, it's open to reason. Now, I could be wrong, right? That's the hard attitude here. I, I could be wrong about this. It's merciful, right? It's, it's willing to extend grace instead of the selfishly ambitious person. Some of you work at major corporations here, right? And, and I would imagine, I've never worked for one. But that the idea to climb the ladder 
in the corporation, which I've often heard from people, is, is you don't try to seek the other person's good. You're not merciful. You say, well, look at his weakness, and I'm so much better than that, right? It's trying to be merciful. Full of good fruits, impartial and sincere. In verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. By those who make peace. The one who's after peacemaking is the truly wise individual here. So he continues, and he asks the question that we're getting at today. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, right? And we're tempted to look to purely external things typically, right? What causes fights among us? Well, it's because we have CRT entering our schools or, you know, I I don't know, whatever it might be. It's because they don't like the color of the carpet, and I do. But James gives this. Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Okay, We have passions. We have these these desires within us to gratify our own flesh. And because those are in us and because they're unchecked within us, we're not trying to root them out. This is what causes every vile practice and all disunity in the church. We have covetousness in our heart. We want something different than what the Lord has given us and we're willing to go after somebody for it. Second text, Galatians 5, that very similarly shows that our Church disunity comes from the heart. The source of disunity is the heart. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. And again, these are longish sections. I know somewhat early for some of you. But I want us to notice that the context of the fruit of the Spirit is in the context of church unity to some degree in a local context of church unity. Notice verse 13, For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the what? Desires. This is a heart word, isn't it? You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But you are led by the spirit. You are not under the law. Now, and we're going to get to this section a little later. Um, I'm just going to read through it. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, notice, the works of the flesh are evident, right? So, if we're to consider, what are the works of the flesh? It's not as if, Paul is saying, it's not like we have to go hunting for them. Like, I don't know what the works of the flesh are. I have to really search deeply to find what these things are. Paul's saying they're manifest among us. We know what the works of the flesh are. It's very obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy... Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Notice how many of these things, I think all of them, tend to break apart unity, right? These are works that disunify the people of God. Verse 21, envy, 
drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, how many of these words are obviously words that work to disunify the people of God? You can name them. Rivalries. Dis- What's that? Sexual immorality. Yes, absolutely. Dissensions, right? Divisions. Envy. Jealousy. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. (laughs) I think we can name them all. And so I think that that's a primary thing that we ought to notice. But then when we continue to the fruit of the Spirit, I want you to notice that all of the fruit of the Spirit, and that's singular, right? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit that the Spirit grows, it unifies the people of God. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, notice the heart language, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Verse 24. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, if you've lost me, the idea that we're looking for is the source of all of our church division is the heart. It's our passions that are at war within us. It's our selfishness that's trying to gain over other people. But the fruit of the Spirit works contrary to that. In fact, the one thing that we're called to do is crucify the passions and the desires of the flesh. Right? We're to kill it. We're to kill it. Well, we'll end with these two verses because they are very relevant. If we live in the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Right? And so, the source of our disunity is the heart's passions and desires that are unchecked. The selfish ambition that exists in the heart. And so, as we just read in Galatians, the, the antidote, to some degree, is that we faithfully, gospel-believing, must individually crucify our passions and desires. Right? Now, this doesn't mean we live like the monks or the Stoic, right? That they can say, well, I can put up with all things and I can put on a bold face and deal with all things, right? We crucify our passions and desires in our flesh by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We, we look to Christ and what He's done for us. We look to what He has purchased for us and we realize that we're not living a gospel-centered life and we, we crucify our own passions and desires and do what Jesus Christ did for us. We see that in verses 22 through 26, don't we, with the fruit of the Spirit. When we're looking to Christ, believing on Christ, the fruit that just grows in our hearts, inevitably, when we're believing the Gospel, is love, peace, joy, and all the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we have to crucify. That's not pleasant. But this is a natural outcome of, of a life of faith. If you'll turn back to James, and turn back to James, James chapter 4, what we just read, I want us to notice that we have a little bit different emphasis in James on how to crucify our passions. If the heart brings forth all of these evil desires that manifest themselves in the life of the church that causes disunity, <clears throat> how do we repent of it? Notice in verse 6. But he gives more grace. That's good news. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud. These these proud dispositions of the heart that causes disunity, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. So, what is, what is James? I know he tells us to do a lot of things there. But what, how would you sum that up? What is James telling us to do if we find ourselves with passions in our heart that are tending towards disunity, self-exaltation? To mourn them. Yes. We go back to the Beatitudes, don't we? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Right? We're to recognize that we have these things in our heart, which we all do to some degree, right? We're to mourn over them. We're to have God's response to our passions. What else are we to do? Submit to God, cling to Christ. Yes, and a different way of saying all those things, too, is resist the devil, right? We're not to let our passions lead us. We're to resist, submit to God, and and believe that he is going to give us grace. Now, we continue in verse 10 through 12. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Right? Now, it's interesting. We're talking to people who are trying to exalt themselves. Right? And, and the path that we see to exaltation, which we're all going to experience in glorification, right? It's a path that Christ took. It's humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord. In his own time, he exalts his people. But it's not for us to take up the job of trying to exalt ourselves in this life. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. This is a very strong command with no asterisk here, unless they make you really mad or whatever it might be. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Okay. So, simple thing that I want us to see is that we must own the fact that all church disunity comes from the heart. And the primary thing that we are called to do as Christians to take care of that is to crucify individually our hearts, passions, and desires, right? Uh, my brother Tim Pasma, that's in Leroux Baptist Church, right? And he's a very experienced minister. Something that he tells his congregation all the time. He asks the question, do you know what it takes to split a church? And he says from Ephesians 4, it takes two of you going to bed angry and not reconciling with one another. It doesn't take much. The devil works his way in there. And that's the point of even 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe. That we're to accept this man that's been excommunicated back into fellowship and give grace to him because we're not unaware of the devil's schemes, right? He tries to work in our mind a judgmental, legalistic attitude that will not be merciful and accept these people. So, we've looked at the source of our disunity and praise. And so I want to try to think about particular instances in the Bible where this has manifested itself. So it's come out of the heart, now it's manifested in the life of the church. Okay. Um, first place I want us to go, this might not fit exactly, but I feel like we have to go there, is Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Um, and here we see it manifesting itself as it's, it's coming out of the mouth and in an argument with the disciples. Uh, and we, we know the context. And I'll just read it. I, th- I think you guys can 
put up with the, the large amount of reading we're doing today. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came before him to her, uh, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he, he said to her, What do you want? She said, Say to these two sons of mine, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left, not mine to grant, but is for those who have been prepared by my Father. Now, verses 24 through 28 is what we're focusing on. And when the ten heard it, notice this disunity. They were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. And so, what was the, what was the disunity? What was the heart problem here that caused the disunity? Ambition, yes. Selfish ambition. We want to be the great ones in the kingdom of God, Right? And notice, this can exist among the, the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, what, what, what's the solution that Jesus Christ offers here? Yeah, that your heart attitude is not to be the top dog, but your heart attitude is actually to serve, right? So, it, we fundamentally have to reorient our mind that I'm not here to just receive praise for the things I'm doing. I'm here to love other people and if necessary to give my life for my brothers and sisters, right? This is not the way we think. This is not the way we think. So, another example. Uh, Acts chapter 6, we were there last week. And if you think of others, please tell me, I'm just simply trying to go through in my mind somewhat chronologically the different instances of disunity that we see in the Bible. Acts chapter 6, and you know we, we have the church of Jerusalem growing by leaps and bounds. Perhaps we have 6,000 members in the church of Jerusalem at this time. And, you know, I might be showing that I was a 90s kid, but they used to say more money, more problems. Yeah, but a little more artistically than that, right? And here we see, inevitably, you have more people in the church even yet. You're inevitably going to encounter problems because we're sinners. And we see this in verse 1. Now, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, what's the problem here? What sin is being manifest that's causing disunity in the church? Partiality. Yes, right? They're being partial. Culturally. Partial, I would say, right? These people are speaking Hebrew, so we're going to give them preference over those who are speaking Greek. Okay? But we see the solution here. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So, we have a solution given by the early church to to reinstate unity, right? What was that solution? 
Office of service. That's, that's exactly right. We had some that were being partial, in some sense, exalting themselves in fleshly categories over their brothers. We speak Hebrew. We're true Jews. You're not Jewish enough. Therefore, you're not going to get the blessing. And so he says, I agree. Right? And I think that this is good for us to notice in our particular context. There was injustice in the early church, right? The early church didn't go outside its walls necessarily to correct all the injustice that was in the world. The church's prime goal is, I see injustice in the church and we're going to do something about it, right? We're going to appoint seven men to oversee this manner. And you think about what that oversight might have looked like. There was somebody that was responsible for distributing these goods before. And they were obviously doing a pretty poor job of it and sinning in that, right? These seven men were not just... um, UPS Logistics trying to ship out the vans to get there on time. They're rebuking people for being partial in their sin, being selfish and having un- or fleshly categories that were unspiritual, right? This is how the church operated. Peter and the Twelve saw it was so important for church unity, they're, they're going to install deacons for the first time in history to solve the problem of church disunity. Okay. Romans chapter 14. These are common texts to us, I know. Romans chapter 14. And I'm not going to read the whole text because of our time's sake, but if somebody that knows the chapter, what is the main problem that is threatening the unity of the church in Romans chapter 14? Yeah, yeah. Liberty of conscience versus weak conscience. And things that are um, things that are not clearly stated in the law of God is good or bad, right? Scruples. Yes. I was like trying to read your okay, sorry. No, no, it's okay. I was like, but I, I focus too much on it. So we have the scruples of the conscience, right? And so we have, let's read a little bit. In verse one. And I want you to notice the language of unity Paul uses. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Okay? I believe that this is a text talking about membership in the church, right? And the Roman church, one that's weak in the faith, and as we'll read on, one that only eats vegetables because they won't buy what's sold in the meat market. Okay? One that won't drink wine because this wine might have been offered to idols. They're weak in the faith. They don't understand that an idol is nothing in this world. They don't understand yet, as this point, that the, the earth is the Lord and the, and the fullness thereof, right? But he says, welcome him. Welcome this brother. But not to quarrel over opinions, right? Now, how often we might be able to do that, we might be tempted not to welcome somebody into the church because they have a certain scruple of conscience that we know is going to be difficult for us to deal with, Right? We want unity, and we know it's going to be difficult, but we also don't welcome him to quarrel with him, right? It's not the goal. The goal is not to quarrel with him. Paul states, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Heart issue, right? Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. We welcome him because God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or fall, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Um, 
This is full of exhortation, not just for the division that we have here, but for the, the reinstating of unity. So in chapter 14, we have the problem that scruples are dividing the church, and we've seen that, right? Where have we seen scruples divide people of the church? Oh, no, in our personal lives. We don't have to give, you don't have to name names or anything. I'm not asking for that. I'm just asking what issues? Alcohol? Clothing? Yeah. Government? Yeah, yeah. Amen? Yes? I would say even the preaching style, um, the, the kind of songs we sing. Oh, yeah, people being judgmental of others on a host of different things, right? Oh, yeah, sure. We're not welcoming somebody, maybe, because of a minor doctrinal issue, sure. Yeah, and, and so as, as we think about these things, how does Paul reinstate unity? Or how does he call the Roman church to reinstate unity because these scruples are threatening to divide them? I give you permission to answer. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And we, we, they're bearing with one another here, aren't they? Right? They're, they're bearing with one another. They're not leaving the church because they don't agree, and I'd rather be in a church where they do wear full-length skirts, or whatever it might be, right? The, the, the notion Paul's saying is you should just start another church where you can be more comfortable, right? Paul doesn't say that. Notice in verse, chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong, this is strong language to the weak. I don't know how they would have taken this, but that's okay. Paul doesn't apologize. We who are strong have an obligation, a duty, to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Right? This is hard attitude coming up over and over again. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Right? What else does Paul tell us to do? So we see we're to bear with one another. We have an obligation to put ourselves, as Brother Caleb said, under one another. We're to submit to one another in some degree here. Not to pass judgment, right? He says we're not to despise those strong, right? We're not to despise the weaker brother. That's what we see, right? Let's say we have a liberty. Uh, we, we feel, I think, very scripturally warranted. We have a liberty for a moderate use of alcohol. And we know a brother or sister uh, feels strongly against it, right? Paul is telling us that the, the knee-jerk heart disposition of the stronger brother is to despise the weaker brother, right? And like, you should really just grow up here, right? But... The hard disposition of the weaker brother is what? Pass judgment on the stronger brother, right? Assuming that you're living too much in your liberty, you must have license and you're sinning for living in this way. We have to learn to bear with one another by refusing to pass judgment or despise. We have to. That's what Paul's calling us to, right? So Paul, I think at base, is calling us to examine what we're doing and to realize that we do not have liberty 
to pass judgment or to despise one another on these scruples, these issues that are not clear, black and white, and that brothers and sisters can disagree on and live, have different convictions on how to live their personal lives. Okay? We've got limited time, so I'm going to take us, I think, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to get another example in Scripture. And I want us to see, as you're turning there, not only that there are manifestations of disunity and peace, I want us also to see it's very common in the New Testament church. Very common. Now, in 1 Corinthians 1, we see another manifestation of disunity. In verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but be united in the same mind, the same judgment. For it is reported to me that by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And he's going to tell us what this quarreling was. But I, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? We'll stop there. Okay, before Paul starts to go off in the tangent that we were talking about this morning about, well, I did baptize some people. Um, what, what's the source of disunity? This is a difficult one, I think. More difficult. What was causing disunity in the church? Instead of being of the same mind, each one of them individually were saying something, right? I think so, yeah. Teaching stuff, we read through, they had a heavy emphasis being from Corinth. This is a philosophical center of the universe right at the time. And oratory and rhetoric is an extremely important thing. And so I believe that they're, they're talking about preaching style. Paul spoke with weakness, and they kind of despised that in Paul. Wasn't, wasn't a great speaker, not like Apollos, perhaps, right? Um, or maybe not like Cephas, even, right? There is a disunity, at least, I think, in the context would bear this out for the first four chapters, on personality and style of these different preachers, right? We see that, don't we? I don't really like, he's a little too bold for me in the pulpit, or he's too soft-spoken in the pulpit. I want somebody that's a little bolder, when they preach the word of God. Or whatever you might say. He's too long. I want 25 minutes. He gives me 33 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It's too long. It's too long. Or whatever it might be, right? The disunity of the church is focused upon the minister and his style, whatever that might be. How does Paul correct that in the book of 1 Corinthians? Oh, we'll go. Oh, wow, we're really running. Yeah, yeah, Christ is not divided. We have to realize that first and foremost, have a theological idea in our heart that Christ is not divided. You really are one, right? What we discussed last week, you really are one. Christ isn't divided, neither should you be, okay? Uh, I'm going to take us to chapter 3, in, pri- in particular, verses 18 through 22, and I think that we're going to have to stop there with some closing remarks, even though there's several different examples we could give past that. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Okay, it's correcting this philosophical understanding. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men. Let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas of the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is 
gods, right? I think these divisions, they were claiming hold on certain personalities and teachers, right? We can do that in our reform circles, can't we? Like, we claim hold of this, and this is our distinctive that we're, we're holding to, right? So don't boast in men. Don't boast in men. All things are yours, right? And so we, we, we must get past personality and style and realize that we're united. And if it's not up to our personal preference, I think Paul's saying sanctified way, more than what I'm going to say is, you know, we need to suck it up a little bit, Right? We need to deal with it. We need to learn from ministers that we, maybe we don't like their style a little bit. He's saying, don't boast in men. All things are yours. This minister has been given to you by Jesus Christ for your good. Maybe you need to struggle with a longer, shorter, bold, softer, whatever it is, style in the, in the teaching. Right? Personality divides churches all the time. And I don't think it's Christian. I don't think it's godly. We have to learn to bear with one another here. And so... Do we have any questions or thoughts? This is more abbreviated than I wanted it to be. I had more things to say, but... Divisions are necessary. Huh? Yeah, yeah, divisions that are necessary. So we see examples of that in Scripture, okay? So the northern kingdom, when it was split from the southern kingdom, they made the golden calves on both sides of the kingdom, right? And they were having false worship. And we read in 1 Chronicles that many of the people left the northern kingdom to go to the southern kingdom, right? To have true worship, if we're having idolatry, open idolatry in our churches, and I, I think that that can be a number of great theological issues we can put that under. If we're not believing the gospel, I think, primarily, that salvation is by grace alone, faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone, right? That if we don't have, I don't, think a, I don't think that if a church says that the scriptures are the word of God, right, we have to divide on those things. We have to. It's our foundation and our substance. I think we see that in Revelation 2. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so that's our separating from a church, but we also must realize that in the Scripture there's necessary disunity of individual members, right? When we're living in unrepentant sin, we are commanded to disunify, right? That's what excommunication is. We, 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 we put them away. We are not united with this person any longer because they live in unrepentant sin. Not because they're sinners, right? Or they have a particular kind of sin that we don't like that much that we have to bear with, right? It's not because we're losing our patience with them. It's because they're refusing. They're obstinate. They will not repent and show themselves not have a Christian character in this, not submit to the word and the law of God. Um, any other questions? Thoughts? Maybe just questions because of the time. Okay. Okay, well, uh, I'm going to read one text, I know, and then we'll, we'll just pray. The, the, the great example of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, we don't have time to, to look at the disunity that perhaps was in Philippi, but in Philippians 2, we're called to unity by Paul. Notice his language for if, in verse two, or chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 1, so if there is any... Not all, right? If there's any encouragement in Christ, all Christians should say, okay, I have some encouragement in Christ. Any comfort from others should be some of that. Any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count, reckon in your heart others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests 
of others and have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus, right? The, the source of disunity is the heart. And so, the way that we have, I think the primary command that we have in Scripture to take care of disunity in the local church to make sure we're taking care of it in our own hearts. And I would add to that that we ought to take care of it in our families, right? God has given us our families, our spouses, our children as, as, as little congregations together where we can practice unity. If we don't have unity in our heart, we're going to have problems manifesting it. And that manifestation happens typically in the home first, right? So practice unity. And so next week, we're going to look at peacemaking, biblical principles, how we can go out individually with brothers and sisters we might have problems with or to help brothers and sisters that are having problems that we might make peace with them. Okay, let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son.